Welcome to Disrupting Japan, straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. There are a surprising number of entrepreneurs who dream of coming to Japan to start a startup. And recently, the Japanese government is working hard to make Japan as attractive as possible to foreign founders by relaxing visa requirements, creating tax breaks, simplifying the incorporation process, and even setting up dedicated teams to attract foreign founders and provide them support in English. You might think that all this would make it easy to build a startup as a foreigner in Japan, but it's not. Of course, part of it is just that growing a startup anywhere is really hard. But the culture and linguistic challenges in Japan are very real. And yet, a lot of people are doing it. Today, we sit down with Yan Fan, an old friend and co founder of Code Chrysalis, who's on a mission to teach Japan how to code. Yan came to Japan with the goal of founding and growing a startup, and that's just what she's done. And in our conversation, she lays out her blueprint how she built a network when she didn't speak the language, how she identified her startup's unique value add in Japan, and her experience raising money here from both angels and from CVCs. It's advice that every aspiring foreign founder, or active foreign founder for that matter, in Japan really should know about. We also talk about how the image of software engineers, especially foreign software engineers, is changing, some of the ways METI and the Japanese government are trying to teach Japan how to code, and why they now consider that skill to be so important for the future of Japan. And also, why there is now a picture of Benesse's pumpkin on the Disrupting Japan website. But you know, Yan tells that story much better than I can. So let's get right to the interview. So we're sitting here with Yan Fan, the co-founder of Code Chrysalis, who's teaching Japan how to code. So thanks for sitting down with me. Thanks for having me today, Tim. You know, I can't believe it's taken me this long to get you on the show. We've been talking about it for years. And um, I gave a really high-level overview of Code Chrysalis before, but I think you can explain it much better than I can. So what does Code Chrysalis do? Um, we started out as a coding boot camp here in Japan, but I think we've really evolved to you know, not just providing classes for consumers, but really doing enterprise training, helping Japanese companies leverage their talent from within and create more innovative, agile engineering teams. Okay. Let's talk about both of those groups of customers. So first, the individual programmers or people who want to be programmers, Yeah. which is where Code Chrysalis got started. Yep. So how many have gone through the program so far and, and who are they? Oh, wow. I think we're probably over the thousand mark. I mean, we keep those classes fairly small. Uh, typically, the people coming through our program is in English, and so you have mostly English speakers looking to either 
have a career change here in Japan and go into technology, or um, there are, there are cases where people come here from overseas and then go back, or they use us as a transition point、um, in terms of、uh, leaving Japan. So, so you mentioned everything is in English. So, is that are most of the students non-Japanese or Japanese? What's the yeah, split there? Yeah, I would say most of the students are non-Japanese. The split is probably、uh, it's like thirty percent Japanese historically. So, in every class, we'll always have some English-speaking Japanese people.、Um, but yeah, it's predominantly foreigners who found who found themselves in in Japan. Interesting. And and so, why did you decide to do it all in English? Yeah, so I think when we first came here, we really saw this gap in the market where you know at, I think you've spoken about this with Kani,、uh, my co-founder, in the past. But software engineering has been like a, a dirty job, low-paid, long hours. You know, not really like you know, kind of like mind-numbing. Wasn't attracting a lot of talent. But when we came here about what six and a half, seven years ago. We, you know, we were seeing people in these jobs, but we were also seeing a lot of Silicon Valley esque or Silicon Valley inspired jobs that were popping up.、Uh, like, like what kind of thing? Software engineering jobs、oh. that actually paid a decent wage, that actually had a career.、Uh, you know, well, I, I think yeah, your timing was just about perfect on that because I think as recently as ten, fifteen years ago, software engineering, software development was considered kind of a clerical job. Exactly, it, it was almost like data input. Yeah,、um, and it was really with the cloud com- computing boom、yep. that that kind of kicked off the rethinking. Of what software engineering was in Japan. Yeah, and you know, six and a half, seven years ago, there were also more and more startups, right? More and more well-funded companies that were popping up.、Um, so, like some of the first companies that we partnered with, like Zahitomo, for example. You've had Jordan on your show, and you know, like they were needing. More than just like a, a coding monkey, right? They needed software engineers in in I would say like in the sense that Silicon Valley was kind of pushing out to the rest of the world. Since we're talking about software engineering, let's talk about inputs and outputs.、Mm-hmm. So when students come into the program, are they like they have no programming experience for a year or two, and then when they go out of the program, where do they go? Do they go to startups? Do they go to big enterprises? For our flagship boot camp, we require people to get to a particular level of knowledge. There is a bit of a filter there. You know, there's all this free stuff online, and our program is not cheap, right? It's like one point about one point three million yen. So, like, what kind of filter do you have? Is it is it like Hello World? Is it like build a website or like it's like in between that?、Okay. So it's definitely more difficult than you know just being able to to output Hello World. It's a technical interview,、okay. basically. It's like a like a beginner level technical interview. But the goal is it's it's a level that. You feel most people can get to by studying on their own on the internet. Absolutely, we wanted really serious people, right? Because we were seeing these jobs that paid better, that were like higher quality, and so we wanted to make sure that we were getting high quality people that we could train up.、Um, and to your second question, I think most of our students、uh, go to like SMEs, 
So, and that includes startups, of course, but like, I think small, medium-sized companies have been the ones most, most active in terms of hiring our graduates. Interesting. Why, why do you suppose that is? I think big companies really struggle when it comes to any sort of like career switch or mid-career hires, right? I mean, you you have touched upon this, I think, in, in previous episodes. Yes. <laughs> it's getting better, but it's still a challenge. It really yeah. is. So I think there have been big companies that have been interested and actually Google hired one of our first graduates, but even though we might have supporters of ours in some of these big companies, oftentimes they are handcuffed by like HR policies, right? That they can't do anything about. Um, and so it's, it's a bit more difficult. Whereas I think small, medium-sized companies, they're a bit more nimble. They're also in a much more competitive environment when it comes to finding talent. Yeah. Um, talent in Japan tends to flow towards large companies still. It's, it's gotten way better especially since we've started. But when it comes to businesses like like at our size, for example, you know, we have to compete a lot more heavily because we don't have the, the fancy name recognition that like a large company would have. Yeah, that, that does make sense. The SMEs would be more likely to take a chance on, on exactly. a different type of education and something yeah. that's non-standard. And I would say, you know, the graduates coming out of our program are not are non-standard, right? These are career changers. So they come with um, a previous amount of experience and like they can be actually these really great hybrid talents. And I think like hybrid talents have a bit harder of a time making it in Japan because of how companies are structured oh, here. But if you're a small, medium-sized business, you really need that hybrid talent. And you're a lot more open to, you know, changing your ways of working. And so I think um, our, our graduates are, are fairly attractive for that. Makes sense. Yeah, I want to talk about your corporate programs in more detail. But yeah. before that, I want to talk a little about you. Okay. <laughs> What do you want to know about me? Um, actually, you know, I think we first met back in 2016, 2017, just as you were starting Code Chrysalis. Yeah. I... F I At was... Slush, I think. Yes, actually, great memory. That was where we... That was, like, where we, like, officially launched. Yeah. Oh, I miss Slush. That was fun. It that was, was like, a great event. Yeah, it was, like, fun and cheesy and... <laughs> Um, <laughs> over the top. It was it? very over the top, but it was like in a fun way. Yeah, we we launched there. Um, it was co-founder, me, and we had one employee. And uh, my co-founder and I, we made our spouses show up to help us out. <laughs> so we, we gave uh, his wife and my my boyfriend like these t-shirts, these Code Chrysalis t-shirts to wear. And they were like, you know, trying to... Trying to beef up the staff a yeah. bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like we're not, we're not this dinky little operation. Um, so yeah, they were, they were uh, salespeople for us for like two days. So, but, but you started out your career in, in finance, right? Yeah, so, it's like pseudo-finance. Pseudo-finance. <laughs> <laughs> pseudo-finance because I, I really did not like investment banking. <laughs> uh, but the nice thing about it is that it had me, allow, it allowed me to travel the world and uh, it put me in Singapore, you know, where I was seeing like a ton of just startup energy. And I think that was what kind of sparked this nascent desire in me. What were you a were you a coder yourself? 
No, I I did not. So so what what was the thought process that led to ah boot camps? I hated my job in commodities so much. Lots of people in finance hate their jobs. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I was around all of these companies. And and this was back in, like, 2013. So this was, like, when, like, Airbnb and Uber and, like, you know, all those, like, companies were coming up. And I was really quite inspired by just how fast our lives were changing. And so I started thinking about businesses that I wanted to start. Um, every time I had an idea, I realized that a big barrier was I don't know anything about technology. And so, um, and so I started, uh, going to just like free coding events and it kind of went from there. So then it became, well, I don't like any of the ideas that I have. So why don't I try to become a software engineer? Someone told me about this thing called coding boot camps that had just popped up in the U.S. And I thought, that sounds really friggin' crazy, but I need to do something. I can't stay in this job. So like in the process of learning to code, you decided, uh, I want to teach this to other people. No, it, it actually happened pretty gradually. Um, teaching has always been a side hustle of mine. So in university, instead of like the usual university jobs, I became a bartender and then I taught bartending classes and whiskey tasting classes. Because, you know, we had a big... <laughs> I think I see a pattern <laughs> developing here. We had, a, we had a large portion of people at my university who were going into, you know, on a Wall Street and they needed it to look cool. And so I was like, well, learn all these different kinds of whiskey so you know how to order in a bar. And I was able to, like, get some pretty big classes of, like, mostly frat bros. <laughs> <laughs> I can I see that. Yeah, yeah. So I made a fair amount of money. Uh, and, and so I, I um, has, have always really liked teaching. And in San Francisco, when I moved there, you know, to do the boot camp and also to work as an engineer, I was teaching for fun. And then it became teaching for as like a side job. So I taught at the previous at like the old boot camp that I had gone to. Right. And one thing led to another and I ended up starting a coding boot camp in the Middle East. Um, helping start that. And then when I left it, that's when I met my co-founder. So it's sort of like this weird, it, it wasn't, it wasn't intentional at all. Yeah. But sometimes that leads us to the best, the best destinations. Yeah. But okay. But I mean, the next obvious question is why Japan? You didn't speak Japanese at that point, right? I yeah. didn't. Did you have um, ties to Japan or? Not really. So my boyfriend at the time now husband was living here. But I think we were, you know, for me, I, cause I was in Singapore, moved to San Francisco. I wanted to come back to Asia and was basically had a few cities that I was choosing between. And I thought, I quite like Japan. And it was like, I can see quite a nice life here. It's a nice place to live. It's a really nice place to live. I liked a lot of aspects of Japan. And so I was really thinking of like, well, what can I do here? Like, how can I make it work here? At the time, there weren't a ton of software engineering jobs. And I didn't want to take a massive, massive pay cut, right? Well, I mean, you and Connie certainly spotted a need for teaching people to code and the boot camp process. And and things have worked out pretty well. You're up to like 50 people now? Something, Something like that, yeah, give or take. And as you've grown, have you been completely bootstrapped or VC funded? 
We were bootstrapped from the beginning. So Connie and I both had savings from working in San Francisco. And then we brought on an angel investor, not necessarily for the money aspect of it, but the fact was like neither, well, Connie's half Japanese, but we didn't really have very strong ties here. So this angel investor was able to like introduce us to people and open some doors and give us a bit of credibility. Um, but in 2021, we ended up raising from a CVC. Uh, and it was more of a strategic raise than anything. It was a little over a million USD. So a small round. Can, can you talk yes, about yeah. who the, the CVC was and what the strategic value they saw was? Yeah. So um, the CVC was Benesse. And so Benesse is, I think, like the largest education conglomerate in Japan. I think it's actually the second largest in the world. They own a lot of stuff. Um, kind of the most famous thing that they had owned was Burlitz, but they do tons of different things here. Everything from like magazines to like IP to, um, LMSs, like the, you know, tech that they use in school, textbooks in everything. They also own the, uh, pumpkin, like the Naoshima pumpkin. I have no idea that what is the pumpkin? They you know, like that big pumpkin that the tourists like to go to. Oh, that thing. That's owned by Benesse. Okay. (laughs) It's kind of like my favorite fact about them. (laughs) Okay, I guess Um, it's got to be owned by somebody. Yeah, Yeah. so, uh, and um, we had made contact with kind of the executive in charge of Udemy, their Udemy Japan investment. And uh, we'd kept in touch. And so it was really, we were trying to build that relationship with the Udemy Japan team. But does Benesse, they must be running their own coding, if not boot camps, coding education programs as well. I think at the time they didn't have that. Okay. I'm, I, on Udemy, I'm, yeah, they have. But but I mean actual in-person coding lessons. Uh, no, they, they did not. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if indirectly they have some sort of involvement and stuff. But um, as far as I'm concerned, and I, I could be wrong, um, they, they don't. And I think they were interested in sort of like the community and energy that we had created and wanted to, to be a part of that. Let's talk about this, especially now since there are, um, I don't want to say a lot of coding boot camps, but a lot of, let's call them coding education programs around Japan. What was your marketing strategy? How did you attract the initial students and how has that changed as coding education has gotten more popular? Initially, and I think for a long time, the company was able to sell itself through events and community building. Like one of the things that I felt was really needed in Japan that I felt was was lacking was this like, I don't know how to describe it, but like this sort of like community of learners. Like when I was a, when I was an engineer in, in, in Silicon Valley or San Francisco, it was, I learned really effortlessly there. Like I, because there were always free events. I was always learning from other people. It's just like anywhere you go, someone is talking. That's an interesting point. I, I, I think also in the U.S. there's a really, or at least in tech, there is this real sense of people learning from each other. Yes. There's a lot of this horizontal learning where in Japan, it's still very vertical. Exactly. And I wanted to bring that here because it was 
it, it wasn't just about like, oh, we need students, like we need to make money. It was really like, this is really lacking. We needed, I just felt like, yeah, we, we need this in Japan. We need this in Tokyo. Has innovation. that changed much in the last seven, eight years? I think it is still missing. It's just not an automatic thing that people will do. I think there's still some hesitation and, and I understand, you know, the reasons why it, it can be very scary, especially if there isn't that culture, right? That, that's a really interesting point, especially you were mentioning before that the majority of your students are non-Japanese. And, and I'm wondering if that rubs off. Do, do the Japanese participants, once they're exposed to that kind of horizontal, everyone teaching each other, do they jump into it and participate or? Do they have trouble like getting into that mindset? Um, there are lots and lots of meetup groups, uh, a lot more than when we started. Mm -hmm. And I think just, you know, the, the kind of two communities share in sort of different ways. They kind of prefer different methods. When they come together, there's always that language barrier and cultural barrier, right? So that, I think anytime we did bilingual events, I, I always felt like, you know, um, something could have been better. Like you have to get like that right ratio of people who can be bridge builders and having things structured in a particular way where both sides feel like they can benefit. And that's, that's pretty difficult to do, I think. Yeah. As someone who came to Japan to start a, a startup with, you know, limited connections into the, into the market, what kind of advice do you have for, for other foreigners, especially other foreign women who are thinking of coming to Japan and, and following the same path? It's all hustle. <laughs> Let's break that down a little bit. Um, I think one, you have to have passion and you have to believe in your idea and that your idea is something that you think is genuinely going to make a positive impact in the world. And I think if you can communicate that passion, that, that is authenticity. Um, so like that authenticity, I guess is another way to put it is, is really important. And on top of that, being able to share that, that authenticity and that passion as widely as possible. Let's, let's talk about that. Cause I think like passion is, is important, but th there's lots of passionate people Absolutely. who don't succeed. I used to be a professional musician. I was surrounded by passionate people who were broke. Yeah. <laughs> so sharing the passion, what does that mean? How do you, how did you like build those connections? How did you get people aligned and, and sharing your vision? Yeah. Well, we had a strategy coming in for like, here's how we can get those first students. And it was through events like, like I was talking about before. And also because our program was very expensive, we had to build a lot of trust. So it couldn't just be, Hey, here's a website, go to the website and read all about our programs. It was really making sure that we talked to people and identified who our key customers were. I was quickly able to get a gauge of like when someone would be much more willing to listen to me talk about Code Chrysalis. So and were you were you going to existing events and presenting? Were you going to events and networking? Were you hosting your own events? Both. Again, back then there weren't a lot of existing no, events, no, no. right? There, no. In San Francisco, there would be stuff every day. And tons, like I'd be booked up. Sometimes it, you know, I had trouble deciding between like several things to go to. 
there wasn't that here. And so for me, it was like, well, a really easy way for us to test is just to put, you know, put an event page up, post as much as we can, tell people about it and see who shows up. And I think for our first event, we had like 50 people show up. It was like a intro to HTML, CSS thing. 50? 50, yeah, That's five zero. really good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I thought like, okay, well, maybe we're on to something, right? And it was a free event. It was, wasn't uh, as much pitching about Code Chrysalis. It was more just like, let's get to know the types of people that are coming to this event, what their issues are, you know, what they're doing in Japan and what they think of this idea. And so from that, you start to kind of pick out, okay, there are these certain types of people that seem a lot more willing and open to paying this like large sum of money to like do this kind of crazy three month boot camp. For the people who weren't targets, it was really just making sure that they knew about us. And so something else that I did was targeting existing engineers and getting them to like, hey, these are the problems that I'm seeing and like getting them to vent right? To be like, oh, I totally agree with what you guys are doing and get them to become supporters. Um, and so a lot of our, you know, some of that traction also came from engineers that were already here that believed in what we were doing. So it wasn't a simple matter of marketing and, and sales prospecting. You were actually, you were discovering what needs existed in the market at the same time and adapting your programs to those. We didn't adapt too much. So we had an idea of like, all right, we the visa length for a tourist visa is 90 days, right? And right. so we were like, all right, so our program cannot be longer than 90 days. <laughs> okay. Because if we have people coming from overseas, they're not going to be able to stay long enough. Right, right, right. right. Um, and and they, they also want to look for a job. So it's like, okay, you do the 90-day program, hop over to South Korea for a weekend, come back, and then you have 90 days to find a job. Right. So there were some parameters that we had set just, you know, based on like, how much can we teach in that amount of time? Where do people need to be at? And so because, you know, we had that 90 day timeline, there's no way you can take someone from knowing nothing to being like interview ready. Yeah. So it was like, all right, we need some kind of like starting point. And we need to get people up to a level to that starting point where we can be the most productive in the 90 days to get them to a level where they can, you know, find a find a job in Japan. And, and has that strategy stayed fairly consistent as you've grown? Yeah, it's still the same in like the core, like the essence of is still the same. And it was from the reputation that we had created on the B2C side that really helped us segue into B2B. You know, actually, let's let's take a step back and talk a little about why coding boot camps are needed in Japan. Why are there so few qualified programmers here? Um, I wouldn't say that there's so few qualified programmers. I mean, there is a lot of engineering talent that's here, but yeah, there's a gap, right? In terms of what universities produce and what companies actually need. Uh, and so you have a gap there. Well, so university programs are famous for being um, focusing on the abstract yes. and theoretical. It's sort of like majoring in math and then becoming an accountant. That's a really good analogy. That gap you mentioned is very real. And it's, so, it's very entrenched. So it is changing, but it's not changing at the speed at which Japan yeah. needs it. 
I think Japan, you know, it's, it's where the U.S. was like maybe 10, 15 years ago. Right now, when I look at my university's CS program, they've got UX, UI stuff. They have, you know, web programming and like frameworks and like they have like all of that stuff already. And uh, if you take a look at, you know, any university in Japan, their, their course lists, they don't have a lot of that stuff. Yeah. Lots of algorithms, lots of theory. Yeah, yeah. Which is also necessary, but yeah, it's it's not what companies need right now. Um, so I think that plays a part in it. And then two, like I brought this up before, but hybrid talent, because you need people who can bring something a bit different. And I would argue that boot camps are able to provide that, where you take someone with a pre-existing bit of knowledge with who can work, who's had experience working teach them to code and they're kind of like this kind of souped up software engineer hybrid that you can place. So like a good example is, you know, we've had people who was who were English teachers and then they became software engineers through our program and then they ended up working at ed tech companies. Right. That segues really nicely into Code Chrysalis's recent focus on enterprise sales. Yeah. Tell me about that. What are these enterprises looking for in retraining their staff and in, in getting people to code? You know, that is such a, that's such a big question. And I think, you know, Japan until recently was the third largest economy in the world, right? <laughs> I think it was only like recently that they fell to number four. There are these massive, massively influential companies in Japan. And, you know, they have a lot of people. You know, when you look at like competitiveness and like talent rankings, the things that Japan ranks the lowest in are things like talent. And um, what was another one? Like productivity and efficiency is also one of the lowest things. Companies are trying to figure out what they can do with their workforce to better prepare themselves for the future. I think companies are trying different things. So, I mean, but the, the Code Chrysalis's customer base, are, are they, do you think they're engaging because they, they think everyone needs to learn to code? Are they taking a group of employees that they want to transfer to a more technical role? What are they doing? It's uh, typically the latter. So I think, you know, what I what can be used to describe all of our customers is that they are, you know, trying to figure out ways to invest in, in the talent that they have. And knowing that they need to improve maybe or like change up the skill set or reskill or upskill um, the, the people that they have. Um, and so I'd say some customers are doing just like a full transformation where they're looking for great employees who have, you know, that technical potential that they can train up and maybe put into a different role. And we also have a few customers that um, are looking for upskilling where they have engineers and they want to like modernize them a bit more um, or get them to kind of think a little differently or getting them that, yeah, just like that. Okay. But not, not so much the everyone should learn to code way of thinking yet. I think that depends. So there's a part of a company that I can't talk about where they had actually all of their new grads take our coding 
class. Oh, all right. Do our do our coding program. So that was like a a two hundred person class, right? But in terms of like the entire company, and this is like a massive company, right? No, but that's that's really what what was the what was the company's thinking on that that program? Well, it was for their specific team that they thought like, well, we don't know necessarily what they're going to go off and do, but like, this is a useful skill. So why don't we try this out? See, I, I think that is really forward thinking. I, I, I agree. So with all the talk in Japan about digital transformation or DX, yeah. everyone's focused on like, well, let's put in the SaaS software and let's, let's do remote work. And that's great. But, but I think actual programming technical skills is what's going to drive digital transformation. I would, I would add that it's not just technical skills because I really think that one of the unique points of Code Chrysalis is that we also have what we call power skills, but soft skills basically that go hand in hand with the technical skills. You know, you really need the meta skills of like how to learn, how to work with other people, um, how to communicate. Those are the things that people need in addition to technical skills. Another thing just to add to that is, yes, DX is necessary. We are seeing a lot more jobs that are now requiring coding knowledge that didn't have it before. So the example that I always give is marine biologists or like urban planners, for example, sure. right? 10, 20 years ago, you didn't need to know how to code. But now if you start looking at the job requirements, it's like, yeah, you need to know how to use Python because you have to crunch all this data, right? Or if you're an urban planner, you need to be able to model traffic flows. And so it's not just, oh, like the new jobs, like the software engineering jobs or adjacent jobs that are needing coding. It's these older jobs too that have been around for a while. It's just becoming a, a fundamental skill. Exactly. Well, I mean, back in the old days, word processing was a specific skill that some people had. And now it's just, of course, everyone can do this. <laughs> no. Yeah. I, I don't know. I think coding to some degree is going to become like that. I think it is going to be, you know, not necessarily like everyone be a software engineer, but having an understanding of like how to form like a, you know, that process of instructions that yeah. you would give. There's a lot of the new SaaS software that comes out or like the marketing software that I see. A lot of it is really just like plug and play coding, right? Like if someone clicks on this email, then do this, right? right. That's coding. So I think at the bare minimum, being able to piece that sort of stuff together is really useful. And I've heard numerous times people taking even just our intro course and being like, oh, I didn't realize this thing that I was doing at my non-coding job was coding. And now I understand that so much better. Yeah, I, I think you're really right. It, it is the base knowledge required for coding now is, is much less than it was 20 years ago. The, the, the interfaces are better. The, there's much more tooling there that you just don't have to build yourself. Exactly. Um, but I think, yeah, regardless of like kind of how companies are viewing it as in like, you know, oh, everyone should code or we want to create a team or whatever. We just want companies to think about their employees and how they can help, you know, upskill or reskill the talent that they have. Cause there is so much of it that, that we really believe can be unlocked. Changing careers is 
a very uh, rare thing in Japan. It's why the consumer portion of our program is not very big. It's, it's, people don't do that very often. But I think we're coming to a point where um, maybe not a, a career switch, like going from a company to another company, but I think you know, companies should look at maybe providing something like that internally. It'll be great for the company, great incentives, you know, like something providing something maybe new for employees. I also think like there, you know, is only so much hiring from overseas that companies can do. One of our first customers, uh, actually our very first enterprise customer was Mercari. And they hired a bunch of, you know, new grads out of the IITs, out of like the Indian, you know, tech schools, tech universities. Um, And we were actually sent in to do their onboarding and training to turn them into software engineers. And so, you know, yeah, Mercari is able to do that. Not every company is able to get that kind of talent. For example, Medi is really pushing digital reskilling yes. across, across the board. And actually, I noticed Code Chrysalis has some kind of Medi certification for... That's for the consumer side. Um, if it's a program, I think it is. It's people who apply for Hello Work, the unemployment yes, benefits. Exactly. Yes, it is that. So have people been doing that? I think that's a great thing. I actually don't know. That's a good question. I would have to, to check with team members. But I, th- I think it is great. There, there is this society-wide push to learn to code, to, to reskill. Yeah, there is. It's, it's kind of this like slow moving. It's, it's happening, but it's not happening, I think, at a speed that I think all of us want yeah, yeah. to Yeah, it's, it's definitely <laughs> not happening nearly as fast as we would like it to. But it's happening, and yeah. I think... The reason why maybe it's not happening is because no one has like a clear, oh, this worked really well sort of thing. Like everyone's kind of trying, trying a lot of different things. Right. Yeah. And it's because this is a systemic issue. Yeah. Right. So there's going to be different solutions. I also think that a lot of the, the leaders of these large companies in Japan, they also are not exactly the most knowledgeable when it comes to what to do. And so I think that also has played a bit of a role in the kind of slow speed at which things are moving. Do you still code? Um, I do not, unfortunately. I was thinking of getting back into it, but... I, I still code. I you still it, code? I do, I find it soothing. Actually, you know what? I do code in, in like small random things. Like sometimes I'll get really annoyed by something and I'll put in like a, you know, like a cron job that like. Yeah. Some people like doing crossword puzzles or Sudoku or what I like coding. It's that kind what of. Do you, what do you work on? It's embarrassing. I, I still do most of my programming either in Java or JavaScript. Actually more JavaScript these days. Yeah. I mean, JavaScript is, yeah, it's, it's the, I think it's like the most convenient it, it's not what you would yes. call an elegant language, but um, it gets the job done. <laughs> Fast. It's easy to get up and going. I mean, that is also the the kind of default language that we use. It is use. these days, yeah. yeah. Everywhere. JavaScript and Python. I mean, if you don't have deadlines, coding is wonderful. Yeah, oh, I agree. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Going down like fun rabbit holes. Yeah, yeah. I, I've always enjoyed yourself, that. Yeah. It's fantastic. I agree. Yeah. Um, Actually, another thing I think might have changed, I want to get your opinion. When, when you started seven, eight years ago, Japan was often overlooked 
for China. That was one of the reasons why it came.、Actually. Yeah. Yeah. Why? What do you mean? Why? I'm Chinese, but you know, I also have this. I I don't like it when everyone's rushing towards something. You're just a、like、contrarian by nature. I am a bit of a contrarian. I'm like a gentle contrarian. I'm not like on the internet yelling at people, but <laughs>、um, you know, there was ten years ago. There was this. If you were interested in Asia, you were going to China. And I always thought that was, you know, well, it's, it, I'm flattered that there are so many people interested in the homeland. But yeah, I wanted to be a little different. And Japan was intriguing because it's number three. <laughs> you know, you have U.S. as number one, China as number two, and everyone is overlooking number three.、Yeah. But number three is a pretty intriguing place with a lot of things to offer.、Um, do, do you think that attitudes? Shifted at all with? Oh, absolutely. I think you know the the opportunities in Japan are even more plentiful now. What I really like seeing is the U.S. has really had a renewed interest in just strengthening the relationship with Japan, and I think that presents a lot of opportunities. Well, there's certainly been a lot more American and European VC interest in Japanese startups over the last year than there has been over the last. Ten years. Yeah, I, I find that very interesting, given kind of the low interest rates here. But yeah, I I think that it is building up here, and I'm hoping that that renewed interest in Japan is is going to benefit just the startup community here. More ideas, or more mentorship, or more direction, a bit more competition. Well, listen, Yan. Before I let you go.、Mm-hmm. I want to ask you my magic wand question. Oh no, no! We should talk about B two B. That is, if I gave you a magic wand and I told you that you could change one thing about Japan, anything at all—the education system, the attitudes towards women in Japan, the attitudes towards the value of coders—anything at all—to make things better for startups and innovation here in Japan, what would you change? You know, I have to say, I don't like this question. It's a fun one. <laughs> you, I, I notice that you ask this to everyone. I do. You know, I, I have to preface everything that I think and say. You know, I feel like is depends on my mood that I'm in. Sometimes I'm like so pessimistic about things here, and sometimes I am so happy to be in Japan. I'm sure you go through. What kind of mood are you in today? I think I'm in a Zen mood. Oh, excellent.、Um, Yeah,、uh, magic wand. What would I do? I would love to see the labor market be a lot more dynamic. I think that there is a lot of dynamicism in Japan. A lot of different ways of thinking, ideas, and that needs to get unleashed in in I think multiple ways. Um, so one, I would love to see like people going to other companies and gaining experience. I would like to see people getting out of these big companies and doing other things. Do you think it is that employees are comfortable and don't want to change jobs, or do you think it's the structure of the companies don't allow people to change jobs? Oh, it's both. Right, companies here aren't good with mid-career career changers, and I think there is still a bit of that, you know, lifetime employment mentality that that permeates. But 
you know, even though that was really vital for Japan to build up back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, I think that there has to be some kind of a shift now where there needs to be sort of that unlocking of talent. And I think like, you know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, that talent was unlocked in very particular ways. And I think we're in a new era. And um, yeah, I would, I would like to see that. You know, I think it's, you know, startups are kind of providing a little bit of that liquidity in that yes. you're finding more and more people who've worked in enterprise for 10, 20 years, leaving and going to startups. Exactly. And I think that's great. But with running and building Code Chrysalis, one of the things that's been a struggle is finding people with that growth experience. Like, I'm not even talking about scaling experience, right? Just growth experience. For example, someone who, you know, joined a company when it was 30 people and left when it grew to 500, regardless of like what position that they were in, right? Because I think, as a company expands and grows, it goes through, you know, different amounts of like chaos and like changes and shifts. And because people don't have that experience, it's much harder to say like, oh, I've seen this before. Just that, like, that cultural that. experience of, of going through that. Yes. And uh, I wouldn't say cultural, but just like organizational experience of like, you know, what happens to this organization when it becomes bigger? How are you going to reorganize or change the way of working? Or like, oh, when my company did that, when it grew to this size, we adopted these things that helped a lot. So that kind of experience throughout the different roles, whether it's HR or finance or, you know, operations, that is something that I think needs to get built up in Japan if if Japan wants to continue growing. Well, I think we're going to need a lot more startups for that to happen because there's only one place to get that that kind of experience. Yeah, but you can also get a taste of that by going to different types of companies and seeing how yeah. different companies work, right? Because if you are only at one company, your kind of mind doesn't get opened up to different ways of doing things necessarily. And this is not a Japan only issue. Like I remember in San Francisco, we'd make fun of people who had worked at Microsoft for like 20 years and left Microsoft and were like kind of lost or, you know, Google has the same issue. Japan has that as well. Do you think it's getting better? You think there is more of this liquidity developing now? Oh yeah, absolutely. It is getting a lot better. It's not where it needs to be though. Um, I think there was, yeah, there was a study done where they were seeing more streams coming from particularly like the more prestigious universities and the more prestigious companies, right? Where people were leaving those positions and going into startups. So that's a great sign. But yeah, we need more. Well, it sounds like we're on the right track in any event. Well, Yan, thanks so much for sitting down with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> thanks for having me. And we're back. You know, Jan's experience really highlights the importance of a dynamic startup ecosystem. Startups simply can't grow in isolation. Code Chrysalis's first corporate customers were startups. They then expanded to more traditional enterprises, which then attracted CVC interest. 
It's a formula that plays out across every kind of B2B startup. Other startups are early adopters. They'll take risks on a new company in their search for an edge. And once a startup establishes a track record serving other startups, it becomes easier for enterprise customers to use them as well. And as Jan pointed out, a dynamic ecosystem allows people to learn from each other. And that is the real key to innovation and to meaningful digital transformation. Digital transformation in Japan has become a buzzword, hijacked by SaaS software companies and systems integrators in order to sell software and services. And that's okay as far as it goes. The software is often a big improvement over the way things are. But a true digital transformation requires changes in skills and changes in attitudes. Only when coding becomes a core business skill, along the lines of using spreadsheets and email, will it unleash a wave of experimentation and innovation that will lead to a true digital transformation. If you want to talk more about the joy of coding or how to start a startup as a foreigner in Japan, Yan and I would love to hear from you. So come by disruptingjapan.com show 210 and let's talk about it. And hey, if you enjoy Disrupting Japan, share a link online or just tell people about it. Disrupting Japan is free forever and letting people know about it is the absolute best way you can support the podcast. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.